fun and games are over as the Sandman now sees the World Heavyweight Champion Raven along with his ex-wife Lori Fullington and their six-year-old son Tyler. My name is Chris White and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. We're going back in the time machine to August of 1996 for volume three of this month's show covering all your ECW action. We have three volumes in total for you this month. Firstly, we have volume one covering your WWF, uh, taking a look at SummerSlam. Volume two is your WCW show reviewing Hogwild and The Clash. But as I say, we are here for Volume 3, looking at ECW, and joining me for that, I have Chris Lacey. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. Uh, How the devil are we? I'm very good. How are you? Let's have some fucking extreme. Exactly, and uh, very grateful to have Chris guiding me through, which I think is my only, only my third cruise back in uh, to ECW, so good to have a, a veteran of the extreme, veteran of hardcore to guide me through this month's show. Um, should we talk some news? Let, let's get out the big stories of the month. Okay, so much like yourself and Dell did last month, covered the news wonderfully, uh, going to throw out some headlines and uh, let's have a chat about a few topics. So firstly, we have ECW's TV deal woes. So... Last month, we obviously we didn't mention it because we didn't see that the details had gone through, but they lost their deal on TV on the 28th of July with the MSG network. Um, basically, change of control decided they don't want wrestling. Um, they signed a new deal with WBIS, and they then sort of lost that deal before the first episode even aired, as they thought they were actually getting a documentary, not an actual wrestling show. So, not the greatest month for ECW in terms of their TV. A pretty major setback to lose your TV deal before, before the uh, first episode actually goes to air, really. 
We aren't. It, it says a lot when someone that you're buying you're buying a program and don't actually know what you're buying. To, yeah, to, to to come to an agreement with a company, ECW is under. It makes no illusions about the product it puts out there. It doesn't try and disguise itself. Um, when you're signing up with uh, Extreme Championship Wrestling, you should very much know what you're getting. So the fact that they uh, didn't agree to deal and then pulled out of the deal looks bad for WBIS, um, but it doesn't leave ECW in a particularly great position either. Um, we don't really know where things stand with that coming to the end of the month. Uh, they yeah they were scheduled to go on uh, Saturday nights at 1am, but now they're not. So uh, we'll have to see how that progresses next month. Uh, so uh, next up, another topic for you. We have Raven's injury woes. Yeah, Raven has not had the best of months. His month started off with having pneumonia, which uh, meant that he couldn't do a couple of the major shows. Then this was made worse by a foot injury that he sustained before going to Japan, but was made worse while in Japan on the Japanese tour this month. Uh, came back and has not been working shows, has been having Taz and Stevie Richards replace him, but then Rat, Raven also being out there in a foot cast. Uh, Raven was expected to have had foot surgery the last week of this month, but that isn't confirmed. So again, we'll have to let you know how that it goes on next month's show. Um, probably not the best idea for him to have worked the Japan tour as he did. In- yeah, I was going to say, um, knowing sort of medical side of stuff, there's no way he would have been fully clear of the pneumonia when they went over to Japan, let alone this injury that he's been suffering for a little while with his foot. And the long plane ride... Because let's face it, it's ECW. They're probably not getting first-class travel. Not going to have done that for any good at all. Uh, not least the hardcore ECW World Heavyweight Championship match with Tommy Dreamer. And speaking of that match, let's talk about ECW's tour of Japan. So this month on the 7th of August, they went to Japan to work with IWA. Um, basically a sort of co-branding of shows between the two, um, bringing the largest crowds for both companies' history. Um, they're both nights were done in the Tokyo area, one in Yokohama, and by all accounts, it was a bit of a disappointment for fans and the ECW chance for the ECW rep- wrestlers repeatedly tried to entice them into. On the second night in the Kirken Hall, this was a totally different matter, where ECW chants were shouted by everyone and there seemed to be a lot of knowledge of the ECW characters there. Whilst there, the main event for the Cook and Hole show was the aforementioned Raven versus Tommy Dreamer match, in which Raven retained his title. Um, ECW did a better job than most companies in the moment over in Japan, with either WWF and WCW being able to draw huge crowds in the Tokyo Dome recently, where ECW got a full house at the Kirk and Hall. So... The tour, yeah, as as you say, a mixed bag, two two nights, two very different crowds. Um, the highlights from the second night at Kirken Hall make up the 13th of August edition of Hardcore TV. So rather than talk about it now, we'll save the discussion for the finer details of that show when we cover the Hardcore TVs for the month. So finally, wrapping up your ECW news, 
we move on to ECW's comings and goings on the roster. Well, as Mandel sort of questioned last month with the fact of how Jericho was the first one out of the Fatal 4-Way match, he has now finally had his final date on the 2nd of August when he uh, left the company after a match with Two-Fold Scorpio. All Japan's Johnny Storm has now come in to replace him. Also, another All Japan star that's come in this month was Dr. Death Steve Williams, who also made his debut at the Doctor's Impro show. Obviously, Dr. Death is no stranger to America, having big runs in the old NWA and WCW. Also, was meant to start this month was a Mexican star, Vampiro. But due to a knee injury, his scheduled beginning date of August the 14th has now been delayed. So, we, as you say, uh, stick Dr. Death Steve Williams is no stranger to an American pro wrestling crowd. But Williams has made his name for the last few years in Japan and is probably the top US-based heavyweight wrestler in Japan. So, as you say, between him, Stan Hansen and Vader, they've been pretty much your top sort of three guys for most of the 90s out there in Japan. So, you know, it's it's a big coup for them to get hold of him because obviously he does bring an audience with him because obviously the Japanese audience will now follow what he's doing in the States. Yeah, it's a big acquisition for ECW at a time where really they could do with it, losing Chris Jericho to WCW. Um, and, and they're also picking up Johnny Smith, who we'll talk about his match later, but looked pretty good this month when, when we did see him on TV. So uh, probably a positive, all things considered, in the comings and goings departments for ECW this month. Uh, any other news, or should we move on to our coverage of The Doctor is In? I think it's time for it's the big time. show. So on the 3rd of August this month, ECW had its The Doctor Is In event. And, uh, well, let's, uh, let's get right to it. Uh, Chris, kick us off with the results of that show. So the opening match was Mikey Whitbreck against Devon Storm, in which Mikey Whitbreck won. Uh, Johnny Storm defeated Louis Spiscoli. And Devon Dudley ended in a no contest. Raven was scheduled to have a match against Sandman, but it turned into being Stevie Richards going against the Sandman for the ECW World Heavyweight title. As said in the news, Two Cold Scorpio and Chris Jericho had a fight, with Two Cold Scorpio coming out with a win. Shane Douglas and defeated Pitbull number two for the TV title. Brian Lee and Taz defeated Dr. Death Steve Williams and Tommy Dreamer. The Gangsters be it the Bruce Brothers, the Eliminators, and the Samoan Gangster Party to win the tag team titles in a four corners elimination match, and Sabu defeated RVD in a stretcher match. Chris, what are your initial thoughts on this show? Seeing how good last month's show was, obviously I did have quite a bit of high expectation on seeing something really, really good, and it delivered. You know, it had its moments where obviously the usual ECW problems happen where they get mass brawls with lots of people in the ring all at once and you can't see everything because the camera angles aren't great. But, you know, a good mix of wrestling and brawling as you normally would get, the standard level of violence that you expect. It was a good show. 
Yeah, I agree. I thought I really enjoyed this show. Obviously, uh, not seen as much ECW as yourself. And uh, so when it comes to shows that feature a lot of one thing that maybe you're slightly more worn down on than someone like me, I probably enjoy it slightly more than you. But this show, I have to say, was probably out of the few ECW shows I have seen, the more balanced. It, it had all the styles that ECW offer. And it, it didn't, there wasn't too much brawling in every match. They weren't out for the crowd in every match. One thing I would say though is the sort of, the way the card was put together, uh, while I praised the sort of variety of styles and none of it felt overkill, it was kind of the order of matches on this show felt a bit strange in that you had, uh, the stretcher match, the four corners match for the tag titles and like plus and then just before that, he had Brian Lee and Taz in a tag match against Steve Williams and Tommy Dreamer. And having those matches in a row, I felt like you could have... It wasn't overkill on the show in its entirety, but having them in a row was a mistake, in my opinion. You could have put one of them matches earlier in the card and broken them up a bit with probably a match like Scorpio and Jericho or Douglas and Pitbull 2, somewhere in between. Um, but I really enjoyed the show. Same bit of a problem that ECW does find itself doing quite a bit because obviously a lot of the bigger feuds especially at shows like this sort of are either object matches or you know big end end boss brawls as such um, you do find that the sort of top end of the card may get a bit brawl heavy um, but you know, it's one of the things that ECW still has never got down is the perfectly balanced show. They get the right amount of wrestling to brawling, but they don't ever get it in the right flow. But then that's something that you sort of have got used to with ECW, if you know what I mean. You know, it's like, you know that the first couple of matches, you'll either get a couple of quick squashes or you'll get a couple of sort of the really good wrestling matches. Then you get your sort of the silly bits, then you get your violence, and then obviously your main event. So it's been something that ECW have done for a long time now. And sort of having you come from a sort of an outsider perspective on it sort of shows that, yes, there is a bit of an issue with how the shows flow. Whereas obviously with, say, me and Dell and people like that that watch this a lot, we wouldn't pick up on that because we're so used to it. Yeah, I, I see what you mean, and it, it's it, it. Like I say, you you summed it up well. They got the balance right of wrestling, of hardcore, of, of silly, of brawling. That's fine. It was just the way it was structured on the particular card, and the fact that I pick up on it m- maybe more is is one of those things we've already mentioned. In that I'm not as used to it, and you you, you are uh, used to and accept things like this more regularly because that's just how ECW as it shows, that's just the way it does it. Um, it didn't take away too much from the show. It's just a minor criticism. Um, so, yeah, let's uh, get right into The Doctor Is In. JT Smith opens the show. He gets in the ring and he explains that he isn't going to sing tonight and ex- instead brings out Kiss. Out comes Stevie Richards, the Blue Meanie, Nova and Donnie Allen, all dressed as Kiss. If you actually look back at the uh, advert for this show, there's a ad- it's advertised on the uh, advert, it says, uh, Kiss rocks the ECW arena, which is actually a pretty sw- funny f- swerve, really. 
I mean, no one in their right mind would have expected Kiss to be there, but uh, just having that on the advert and then this is the way the show opens was a a good a good laugh. Uh, the crowd actually really it, it was quite funny. Yeah, and the, the crowd found it funny. Uh, if there's one thing about ECW, it's that with their comedy, they know their audience. So, uh, yeah, the crowd actually really enjoyed this. Uh, the wannabe Kiss group and the crowd start singing I Wanna Rock, or Roll, rock and Roll All Night together. Uh, we then have the Sandman come out with his cane, and he clears the ring. He grabs a mic and sings I Wanna Kick Your Ass All Night. Raven comes down the ring. He's accompanied by Sandman's ex-wife, Laurie, and their six-year-old son, Tyler. Raven goes to get into the ring. He distracts Sandman long enough to give Stevie Richards, to allow Stevie Richards to get back in the ring and allow the Stevie kick to the back of Sandman's head. Raven takes Sandman's cane and smashes Sandman with it, busting him open around the eye. Chris, what did you think of the opening to the show? Well, first things first, I do have to shout out to Stevie and co., that their timely reminder that Kiss have just reformed, you know, and they may bring Kiss over to the UK and we get to see them for the first time in years. But as for this, it sets up the show nicely. We've got obviously an obvious injury to Sandman with Raven smacking him straight in the eye. And also we know that Raven has his foot issues because his foot's out in an ice cast. Yeah. So clearly we have got the setup for what's going to happen later on this evening. And it's it's a fun ECW style way of starting a show. Yeah. Let's have some stupidity and mix in some violence. I I agree. I I enjoyed this. They kept the the comedy well well good, but they kept it on the short end of the scale, which is always a positive. You don't want to overkill at the start of the show. They kept the silliness to a minimum when as soon as Sandman came out, things got serious and then full of Obviously, Raven up the ante by coming down to the ring on his crutches. Uh, and yeah, they, they planted the seeds with the injury angle to Sandman's eye. Something that will be built upon in the, uh, the match that is scheduled for later tonight in this show. So it's, it's one of them they've, they've created a, a sort of storyline for the night with Sandman's injury. And the whole opening segment in its entirety that had probably about 10 guys involved in it. Probably only went about six minutes, and it, it had a comedy. The crowd loved it, and it set up an angle for later in the show. I thought this was was pretty good. So, uh, as I said, it's a perfect way to get the show started and sort of open everything up for the rest of the show. Yeah. So we move on to our first match of the night, and we have Mikey Ripprep taking on Devon Storm. Uh, we cut to Storm in the ring. He's accompanied by Damian Kane and Lady Alexandra. Uh, his opponent is Mikey Wickwear, as I said. Mikey's introduced as the European Junior Weight Champion, having defeated the Dirt Fight Kid somewhere the previous night. Don't really know any more about that than the announcer introduced him, as it? Uh, the match begins, we get some good chain wrestling, the action is fast-paced, with neither man having any prolonged period of control. Lots of swift counters in the early going. Storm eventually does gain control with a few stiff punches and kicks driving Mikey into corner. Storm hits a nice-looking head-scissor takedown. Mikey bundles Storm up to the outside and hits a springboard dive. Damien Kane gets involved, which allows Storm to regain control. The action spills back inside the ring, and Storm hits a nice snap suplex for two. He grinds Mikey down with some submissions, a variation of the figure four, a modified bow and arrow, and an Indian deathlock. 
Storm then hits a reverse Hurricane Rana and a heel kick, which again gets a two. Damien Kane gets involved again, throwing a chair into the ring. Storm sets up for Hurricane Rana off the top rope down onto the chair, but changes his mind on his way up just to spite the crowd. This allows Mikey to get back into it with a clothesline off the top. The comeback doesn't last for long as Storm regains control with a clothesline of his own, and the crowd begins to chant, This match sucks. Storm knocks Mikey to the outside. Kane gets involved again. They sit Mikey onto a chair, and Storm hits a somersault plancher to the outside onto Mikey, which was pretty amazing. Uh, back inside, Damien Kane orders Storm to break the pinfall in order to hurt Mikey some more. Uh, Storm listens. He hits a moonsault, but again, Kane demands that he doesn't go for the pin. Storm goes for a belly-to-back suplex from the top, but Mikey lands on his feet. He hits a Frank and Mikey, which gets a two. The crowd are really into this and really behind Mikey. Damien Kane tries to interfere again, but Mikey catches him with a drop kick. Mikey hits another Frank and Mikey from the top rope. And that is enough for the three count, bringing the match to close at around the 12-minute mark. Chris, what are your thoughts on this opener? It is your standard Mikey Whitbreak affair where, you know, he plays the good underdog. He gets out-wrestled by the opponent. And, you know, then he'll get his hype spots and gets his nice little win. Um, I think the the Devon Storm sort of... Um, oh, what's his face outside? Damien Kane. Brian, Damien Kane. Yeah, I was just having a mind blank. I think that stuff was a little bit random of why would your manager not want you to just win the match? You know, because in theory, in this world of wrestling where managers would only get paid if their wrestlers win, would you not want them just to get on with the match and win it? Um, but, you know, it's wrestling logic. Who needs to actually make it make sense? But as an opener, it was a good little good little go. Yeah, this was fine. I, I do agree with you on the... Uh... Damien Kane making Mike, uh, sorry, making a storm break up the, his own pins uh, towards the end. It's, it's not like this was sort of a particular blood feud. It's not like Stevie would have Sandman beat and Raven demand that he continue the match to inflict more pain. It's not not that type of match. So that, that didn't really work. Um, it didn't really get the heat that was desired. I don't think. But generally speaking, this match was just fine. And the spot with the uh, when Storm hit the plunger to Mikey, who was seated on the outside was excellent. Um it yeah, nothing nothing bad but nothing nothing to write home about either. It was just a fine little opener. So we move on to uh, the next match and we have the de- debuting Johnny Smith taking on Louis Spicoli. Uh, as I say, Smith making his ECW debut here. We get a frantic opening with fast paced physical chain wrestling. Spicoli backdrops Smith to the outside and they begin to brawl. Smith whips Spicoli into the guardrail, but Spicoli backdrops Smith onto it in return. The action spills back into the ring, and Spicoli gets a two-count with an excellent German suplex. He follows up with a leg drop for another two-count. He tries a running splash, but Smith gets the knees up. Smith goes up top. He hits a missile drop kick, followed by a clothesline for a two-count of his own. Smith hits a power slam and gets another two-count. The crowd are really into this so far, probably more than they were the opener. Spicoli ducks a clothesline and hits a picture-perfect spine buster for another near fall. Spicoli hits a sharp northern light suplex. He goes to the outside and grabs a chair, but Smith cuts him off and lands an elbow drop from the top. Spicoli goes for a backdrop, but Smith rolls off. 
it catches him in a tiger bomb, and that's enough to get the free count at around the five-minute mark. Chris, thoughts on this one? I really like this. Um, it's a definite throwback to, obviously, stuff that I've watched with sort of NWA and WCW stuff, and also World of Sport. It had that very sort of British style of, there was catch-catch in there, there was some good suplexes, um, you know, there was the stiff sort of Christmas that the World of Sport guys had. Um, amazing debut for Johnny Storm, because obviously that sort of a wrestling style could go either way in the States, they're either going to like it or they're not, and thankfully, these guys seem to like it. Yeah, I, I agree. This was really fun. I uh, preferred this to the opener. It was about half as long. Uh, it's technically sound, as you say. Hard hitting. It's just two big guys. They hit hard and they slammed each other hard. I'd be happy to watch these two have a uh, another match with each other with and get a bit longer than five minutes, to be honest. This is probably as much as I'm ever going to enjoy a five-minute match. It was really fun. I, I enjoyed it. So uh, next up, we have Devon Dudley, who is scheduled to be facing... Axel Rotten. We cut to the match, and Devon is standing in corner, holding a steel chair during the introductions. There's an early stalling as the referee tries to get the chair away from Devon. This is dragged out for some time before Axel just decides to go to the outside and grab a chair of his own. We finally get underway. Both men exchange chair shots before Axel takes control. He hits Devon with a few chair shots to the back of the head. Devon goes down. Devon then hits Axel with a hard low blow and stands over him, taunting and laying in some chair shots of his own. All of a sudden, Bubba Ray hits the ring. He gets in. He clobbers Devon across the back of the head with a steel chair. Devon goes low again, this time to Bubba, before hitting Sign Guy and Chubby Dudley with the steel chair too. This makes Bubba snap. Him and Devon trade a barrage of punches, brawling in the middle of the ring. Axel's just sitting in the corner watching the whole thing go down. Sign Guy and Chubby pull Bubba, away, Bubba Ray away, which allows Devon to grab the chair and lay the three of them out. There's a bit more brawling, and the uh, two Dudleys exchange more hard chair shots to the head. Big Dick Dudley then hits the ring. Devon threatens to hit him with the chair, but changes his mind and leaves. Devon and Axel are talking to each other on the outside and seemingly on the same page. Joe Styles says he thinks they may have decided to become a team. As they go to leave, all of a sudden, the huge Bubba Ray Duddy just launches himself over the top rope to the outside and hits Devon with an absolutely huge plancher. Devon crashes into the steel rail head first, and we cut away. So, this match was a no contest. What do you think of the segment in general? Can we can ignore what happened in the match, because, as you say, it was nothing. Um, this continues the the Dudley feud. Um, I'm, I like the, the how they're doing this and how they're building the fact of Bubba and Devon sort of going at each other. There's there's going to be a, a decent sort of comeback out of this. I could I could just see it, you know, because both of them have that style of laying it in, shall we say, and that plancher. Where the fuck did that come from? That was a sign. Of, of to the see. one of the one person that I would not imagine to be doing flunches is Bubba Ray Dudley. Well, it was it was superb, and as you say, would never have expected it. 
And the force he hit Davon with, and the force Davon hit that guardrail with, was unbelievable. And I mean, I think there would have been a few concussions, uh, sorry, concussions dealt up from the chair shots alone. But after that, my God, it went. The match sort of aspect to it went a bit too long. It was pretty sloppy. Um, generally speaking, the brawling was. It, it just seemed like this went on much longer than it needed to. Like all of a sudden, Devon would hit the three double leaves with a chair. Then he'd become momentarily distracted. So Bubba would hit Devon with a chair. Then he'd get low blowed. And Devon would hit him and the other Dudleys with a chair. And it just went back and forth unnecessarily. I think they were really dragging out the sort of in-ring brawl with the chairs, sort of stalling before Big Big Dudley uh, came down. Uh, aside from that, I mean, it was a relatively harmless segment. And as you say, the brawling was okay. Just sort of the story aspect to it seemed a bit overkill. But that plancher at the end saved the segment, really, because that was a sight to see. But to be, with the Dudleys, obviously, Sign Guy and Chubby are not wrestlers. So they're not going to be getting in any offence, which does sort of make it suffer a little bit when, you know, in theory it should be three on one and they should have a give Devon a hiding. Because they're not wrestlers, Devon still has to take the beating from Bubba Ray, but also get the violence in on the other two, the non-wrestlers. So, you know, the balance could be better, as you've sort of pointed out, but as a whole, I think it works really quite well. I, I agree that the actual stuff between Devon and Bubba is, is really good. Um, it wasn't so much the three-on-one aspect. It was sort of Bubba would have control, then Devon would take control with chair shots, then Bubba would take control of a few chair shots, then Devon would hit control of a few chair shots. I don't think he needed to do it, the, the change in momentum, sort of, rather than the three-on-one beatdown aspect. It was sort of like that the momentum shifted between Devon and Bubba too frequently. Mm. That that was more the issue rather than the three-on-one aspect. The actual stuff between Devon and Bubba was really good. And as you say, two guys who lay it in, and when you give both of them a steel chair, uh, the outcome is, is pretty brutal. Uh, yeah. Stiff. Yes. <laughs> so we move on to the match that is scheduled for the ECW World Heavyweight Championship with the Sandman uh, taking on the champion Raven. Or so we think we're scheduled to have Raven defending the title. Raven makes his way down to the ring. He's accompanied by Laurie, Tyler and Kiss. Sandman! Right now I'm sure you're in the back cowering with fear. And I'm sure you're going to try to tell these people that because I deliberately hit you in the eye that you're far too blind to be able to come out and wrestle me for my ECW World Heavyweight title. You see, kid, your father never told you the story about the boy who cried wolf. Because it was October 1st, 1994 that Sandman tried to pull the same shenanigans. And when he pretended that he was blinded once before. And right now, the only thing he's doing is the same thing Lori did in their bed all those years. Faking it. You know, 
the world heavyweight champion is digging himself now, a shallow grave. Sandman had the courage, the intestinal fortitude to come out and face Raven, the ECW world heavyweight champion. I wouldn't defend my title anyway. Obviously, the injury to my foot is too severe. And being the champion, how convenient. Being the champion that I am, I will lay down the rules. I will decide who, when, and where I defend my title. Now, what is this clueless putz doing in the ring? Boss, you're not going to believe this. You know what, Kamish? I'll let you tell him the good, not the good, the great news. Stevie, by all means, you tell him. Raven, Raven, tonight, I have some very great news. You will not have to defend the ECW title against all these morons. Well, we know that. A broken foot. Newsflash. Because I, Dancing Stevie Richards, am going to defend the World Heavyweight Championship for you. What a moron! DDT on Stevie! Richard signed the contract to face the Sandman with the Ravens World Heavyweight Raven, title on stop. the line? Stop! Stop, Raven! You listen to me! I promise these people there will be a World Heavyweight title defense tonight. Richard signed the contract. If you're not man enough to defend your own belt, then you deserve the consequences you get. Hit the music. So not only does Stevie have to defend the title, Raven's already knocked him senseless. Raven says he won't be defending his title tonight because the injury to his foot is far too severe. Todd Gordon then comes out. He tells Stevie to tell Raven the news. Stevie excitedly tells Raven he has some great news because Stevie will actually be defending Raven's title against Sandman on Raven's behalf. Raven snaps, immediately drops Stevie with a DDT. Gordon says that the fans were promised a world title match and Richards has signed the contract. Because Raven isn't man enough to defend his own title, Stevie will be doing it for him. Enter Sandman hits the speakers. The Sandman appears and clears the ring of Kiss with his cane. He's running wild, but Raven pulls Tyler in front of him in the corner, and that stops Sandman in his tracks. This allows Stevie to hit a Stevie kick, which gets a two count. Stevie lays in the punches to Sandman's bandaged eye from the opening segment, and Sandman is immediately bleeding from the forehead. Sandman grabs the cane, he hits Stevie a few times, before a TDT gets him a two count. On the outside, Sandman hits a guillotine leg drop onto Stevie, who's draped over the steel guardrail. He follows up back inside the ring with a slingshot somersault leg drop for a two. Stevie hits a low blow, Raven throws Stevie the belt, and he hits Sandman. Minnie comes in, he tries a moonsault, but Sandman recovers, knocks Stevie down in his place. Meanie hits the moonsault onto Stevie, and this gets a two count. Stevie recovers, hits another Stevie kick for a two. The Meanie comes in, 
but he's blinded by Sandman, so the meanie inadvertently hits Stevie with the Tiger Driver. This gets a close near fall. The crowd are increasingly into this. Every time Sandman gets close with a near fall, they grow more and more eager. Sandman hits some chops in the corner before both guys run into the referee and knock him out. Raven hits the ring, but Missy Hyatt jumps in. She jumps on his back, but Laurie comes in and takes Missy out with the loaded boot. Raven loads up a boot in the corner, swings for Sandman, who ducks and drops Raven with a DDT. The crowd are really into this, screaming for Sandman, who begins overflowing with emotion. He collapses in the ring, which Styles attributes, Styles attributes to blood loss, and this allows Raven to again shield himself behind Tyler. Stevie grabs the loaded boot, hits Sandman over the back of the head, goes for the pin. Raven pushes him away, steals the pinfall, just as the referee recovers. One, two, three, and Stevie, I guess, has won the match and retained Raven's ECW World Heavyweight Championship. Chris, thoughts on this? This was the perfect level of match, level of injury that Raven has. Because... As we all know, and we've all seen, that whenever Raven has a match, he has his flunkies involved. Um, obviously, the fact that he can't do a lot because of his foot means that with his flunkies actually being the brink of the match, the comedy of them failing, that sort of, that uh, the Free Stooges style comedy of slapstickness, of Blue Meanie hitting Stevie with the moonsault and all that sort of thing, works so well and gets this match over because what Stevie and co are good at is the comedy side. Um, obviously Sandman played off the injury with the eye from earlier in the evening. Um, he also obviously had the fact of his kid being involved, which that's going to be something that is clearly going down for a little while now is obviously he won't do anything because he won't hit his kid. And then obviously you had the interference with the women, with Laurie and with, uh, in, and having this sort of cat fight moment. The loaded boot, which is something so out of the 80s, I'm surprised that ECW do it. Being involved and still sort of being there. And then the bit that I loved is right at the end, have the glory of getting that pin. I thought this was, about as excellent a match in terms of the storytelling element, the storyline element, was just as good as you're ever going to see. I mean, you could be picky, you could call this overbooked, you could call it a bit of a mess, but everything that happened in this match completely made sense within the storyline. There's no, like, unnecessarily over-the-top interference. It, everything made sense in terms of the storyline. Everything, as you say, made sense in terms of Raven's very legitimate injury. Uh, I thought this was so good. Um, the match itself, obviously, like in-ring-wise, is Sandman and Stevie. It's, 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 like, it's not a five-star wrestling match, but th- there's nothing in this. But storyline-wise, this felt like this could have been like the climax of a movie rather than a wrestling match. It was it was so spot on. And the crowd reacted to it in that manner. They were really into this. Um the more the match went on and the the, the more Raven Stooges messed up, the closer Sandman got, the more they believed that Sandman was going to win the title. And 
in the end. He couldn't quite pull it off. And it's, it's, it's the storylines, it's the storytelling reasons that he couldn't. Tyler was the distraction. Raven grabbed his kid and that stopped Sandman in his tracks and gave Stevie the opportunity. And as you say, in the end, even though it's a match between Stevie and uh, the Sandman, Raven has to get that glory, gets the pin to retain his world title and stands strong with it at the end. I thought this was, in terms of the storytelling side of wrestling, as good as you're ever going to see. As you say, because basically it has every aspect of what's good about every person's character in this match. You know, their flaws are always going to be there. You know that Sandman's never going to have a good match. It's it's not in his, his, his wheel arch to have a good match. But what he can do well is the brawling and make you feel for his character. It's the same with like Stevie and uh, Blue Meanie are never going to have, you know, classic world class matches, but their buffoonery makes you want to watch them. So this was the perfect moment of everyone playing to their strengths. They got the they got the most out of, and it's the old ECW cliche, isn't it, about accentuating the positives and hiding the weakness. But they got the most out of everyone in this match. Everyone reached their not limitations, but performed as as well as they could have done. Like Raven, limited via injury, and then you have like the comedy characters and Sandman, as you say, not a stellar worker, but just that moment where he Sandman ducks the loaded boot. And from Raven, hits him with a DDT, clears the ring with his cane, and he's just stumbling around, sort of overcome with emotion, just like, he plays that character so superbly, sort of like the disturbed, slightly broken, uh, but battling on against all the odds, he's bleeding profusely, he's been through a war, all the odds are stacked against him, and then he turns and Raven has his son, and it just stops him in his tracks, and then, like, a valiant hero in a movie going out on his sword. Stevie sneaks up behind, hits him in a loaded boot, and that's enough to win the match. I thought, Honestly, storyline-wise, as good as anything I've seen, um, I, I, I can't speak high, highly enough of this. And this was only about eight minutes long, so pretty high praise from me for this one. So we move on to a very different style of match as we have two cold Scorpio taking on Chris Jericho in what is Chris Jericho's final ECW match. The crowd knows this. They know he's on his way to WCW. And as the match begins, we have loud dueling chants of You Sold Out and Lionheart. The best chain wrestling we've seen on this show so far, which isn't really much of a surprise, opens the match. And the crowd are really into both these guys. Jericho, uh, Jericho transitions from a leg lace into a bow and arrow, but Scorpio rows through into a pin attempt that doesn't even get a one. Both men stand up and square off. Scorpio takes control with the surfboard variation before transitioning into a chin lock, before Jericho reverses this into a submission I have literally never seen before. Joey Styles agrees. He says he has no idea what to call it, and neither do I. Chris, if you remember the particular moment I'm referring to quite early on in the match. Any idea what Jericho did here? Sort of tied him up, and then it, it was I, a sort of it was a sort of like a death lock, sort of because obviously he had his legs still wrapped, but sort of got his head and 
it's as I said in in the most all the wrestling that I've seen sort of in ECW Japan NWA and stuff I've I've never seen it to give it a name. It was certainly unique, and the crowd appreciated it. Um, but yeah, absolutely no idea what to call it. Uh, they continue to trade to trade submissions, and Scorpio works over Jericho's arm. The crowd starts to chant, "Bischoff sucks dick." Scorpio slows the pace of the match down with a low blow and hits a jumping axe kick. Jericho fires back with a kick of his own and follows it up with a nice vertical suplex. Scorpio then goes low again before going to the top rope, but he changes his mind despite the fans. He's slowing the pace down to a real methodical level. Scorpio hits a brutal running kick to Jericho's face, and Jericho rolls outside to recover. Back inside, Jericho backdrops Scorpio onto the apron, goes for a springboard, but Scorpio moves out of the way. Back inside, Scorpio hits a powerbomb and a guillotine leg drop for a two-count. Jericho back Sorry. Jericho backdrops Scorpio onto the apron again and drop kicks him down to the floor. The action comes back inside. Jericho gets a few near falls before Scorpio hits an awesome sunset flip powerbomb off the top rope for a two. This gets a standing ovation from the crowd. Jericho then hits a DDT but misses with a line salt. He goes for a powerbomb but Scorpio counters with a head scissors. Scorpio looks for a moonsault but Jericho moves out of the way. Jericho hits a splash for a two count. Scorpio goes to the top, but Jericho cuts him off and hits a power slam for two. Jericho then goes up top and misses a dive. Scorpio picks him up, sets up for the tombstone, hits it, goes up top and hits a shooting star press. And that is enough to get the three and lay Chris Jericho's ECW career to rest. Chris, thoughts on this one? Well, where do we start? Um... Clearly, you know, the first true wrestling match of the evening. Um, great, great chain wrestling. It's the one thing you always forget about Two Cold Scorpio. Because obviously you see the flashy moves, you see the high-flying stuff and think, oh my, how is someone that size doing that? But you actually forget how good of a nap wrestler and a chain wrestler he can be. Um, this, this was like two guys that both knew that obviously one was leaving and they were going to put on a show. You know, there was there was great high-flying back-and-forth moments. You know, neither of them left anything in the tank. This was both guys actually going for it. And, you know, I, I feel sorry for Jericho in a way because I don't know if he'll be able to have this type of match in WCW. You know, RWCW under Hogan and the NWO and all that sort of thing gonna have the time and space for people like Jericho to have matches with. You know, you'd hope they'd go in with a Malenko or a Benoit and you get those two having sort of long, decent matches. But, you know, you think him going there is a bit of a waste when you see matches of this quality on ECW and you think this is what the wrestling part of ECW is. You know, you have your extreme. This is the wrestling. And, I'm, you know, I feel a bit sad that he's going. Yeah, uh, I, I thought this match was very good. As you say, the first and probably best pure wrestling match on the show. But I'm not quite as high on it as you were. I, I have to say, high praise for Scorpio. Um, having missed sort of 
maybe ECW's peak days with the likes of the Benoit's, Guerreros and Malenko's. Uh, Scorpio is as impressive an in-ring talent as I've had ECW offer me as a viewer. Obviously, I know there may have been uh, better in the past and whatnot, but in terms of what I've seen, Scorpio is fantastic. But I felt like this match was awesome like from the moment it began. And it reached like a certain level, like a maybe like a, an eight out of ten match. If you three quarters of the way through this, this match was building and building and building nicely, and it was all excellent. But it sort of reached that level, and then just plateaued. And as we got into the final, it was a twenty-minute match, and as we got into the final five minutes, there sort of there was no selling, there was no story. They just traded moves. And then when it was time to do the finish, Scorpio just picked him up and hit the move and won. And it was like, it sort of felt like it came out of nowhere. Like we'd been building to something that should have been so much more than this. And this was by no means a bad match. This was an excellent match. But if you'd sat, if you'd have paused the tape halfway through and said what you expected to see out of the rest of this match, I would have expected to see more than what we got. Maybe I'm being very harsh because this was probably the best match on the show so far. Definitely from an in-ring standpoint, but storytelling-wise, I would have to say I preferred the Sandman-Stevie match. But from an in-ring standpoint, this is the best we've seen uh, today. But maybe I'm being a bit harsh. What what do you think about that? Um, I can see where you're coming from, but the thing with these type of matches, because there isn't a story going into it and they don't sort of they don't need to have the story to make it flow you can have that sort of bit where as you said you know the storytelling gets a bit out of whack and it sort of comes out of nowhere it can with these type of matches because they're not story led you know they're not sort of relying on the story it's more what's happening in the ring but I I could see where your criticism comes from but obviously, having seen a lot of, of this style of match in ECW, um, very rarely do you get a story through the whole of the match, you know, and the finishes can come from nothing, which is something that sort of does happen quite a bit. And I suppose, again, it's being used to it. It's like, as you said, with how the, the show flows at the beginning, you sort of get used to that's what happens in ECW this sort of finish happens quite a lot. So you're sort of used to it. Yeah, I, I, I do see what you mean in terms of coming to expect it. I just like some of the absolute tip-top peak of ECW Zoom ring matches across the last couple of years. Go back to those Benoit Guerreros, even Mysterio and Malenko, and I dare say Scorpio. And Scorpio's had great matches with people like Shane Douglas that I've seen. And uh, I, I feel like this match could have been one of those matches that people talk about and it got to a level and then stayed there, whereas those matches kicked on and con- continued on an upward curve. And when you compare this match, which I think ECW and the two men involved wanted this match to be like a Benoit, Malenko, Guerrero level of hype around it and they wanted to have that kind of match and they got sort of 75% of the way there and then just sort of stayed at that level I, I probably as you say it's, it's different different um, expectations and what people are used to so 
you you may have come to expect something like this from ECW, whereas I'm sitting there really enjoying this match. Half uh, three quarters away through it and expecting something great, and it's sort of the 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 worst quarter of this match was the last quarter. Um, so it sort of came to a not a halt but slowed down towards the end, but. By no means was this anything less than an excellent match. This was this is very very good, but I felt like it could have been slightly better than it was. As is obvious at this time, Pitbull number one is, to say the least, injured. He was injured at the hands of. The franchise Shane Douglas. This time, Pitbull won. Gary, could you fill us in as to the extent of your injuries? As of 5.15 today, my doctors advised me not to wrestle ever again. Shane Douglas and that piece of Francine broke C1 vertebrae and cracked my skull. Not only that, I lost part of my movement in my left arm. I'm part paralyzed. But no matter what these doctors tell me, there is no way I will ever give up wrestling. in front of you people because you are the best fans in the world. There is no way I'll give up because a pit bull never gives up. As long as my partner's here, the pit bull legacy will never die. As of right now, franchise, Francine, you've gotten the last laugh because I'll never ever be able to get you back. And I will live paralyzed and I will live crippled. But my heart is still in wrestling. I love you guys. Championship Wrestling, Shane Douglas will defend the world television title against Pitbull number two. 
You kick his ass. The Pitbulls come to the ring. Uh, Pitbull one, Gary Wolf. He's wearing a halo neck brace. This is the first ECW arena show after Shane Douglas broke his neck. Styles interviews the Pitbulls. Wolf says that the doctors have advised him that he should never wrestle again. He says he has a fractured neck, a broken skull, and he has lost movement in his left arm. But no matter what the doctors say, he loves coming out here and wrestling in front of the best fans in the world, and he will never give that up. The Pitbulls hug. The crowd chants Gary. Joey Styles says that the next up, we have Shane Douglas, and he will be defending his TV title against Pitbull 2. So before we get to that match, what did you think of this very emotional uh, promo segment with the Pitbulls and Styles in the ring? Well, obviously, as as we've sort of not mentioned it in the news, there is no definite coming out of this or whether this is a real career-ending injury or how much of it is sort of for story. Obviously, if he's coming out in a halo, you would imagine that, you know, there is probably an issue there. Um if this is the end of Pitbull 1, it's a shame because, you know, the Pitbulls as a tag team are a really good quintessentially ECW-style tag team. I don't think they'd ever work in WCW or, EC- or in WWF. You know, their style is too much of a brawl, you know, putting people through tables and that sort of thing. I don't think it would work there, but 3CW, they are the perfect power team and if it is the end for him, it sucks. It was a touch-in segment. As you say, I don't know the full details of this injury um, and how much of it was used for storyline purposes, but storyline or, or, or work or shoot, this sight of him there in that halo uh, in the middle of a hardcore wrestling show, is just it's just eerie, and it's like you think about what, these men do to each other night in and night out for ECW for the fans and this can this can happen and is probably likely to happen and it's it's just a it was it was a emotionally charged segment it was quite a touching segment and uh, having it lead straight into Pitbull two taking on the man who well storyline at least I don't I don't actually know how the uh, Real injury went down, but storyline, the man who caused the injury in Shane Douglas was a great way to whip the crowd up into a frenzy for it and, uh, set the scene for a really charged, passion filled match. So, uh, Douglas then comes out with Francine. The pair mock Pitbull One's injury on their way down to the ring. The tension in the arena feels very high. You can feel the crowd, Pitbull Two, and even Styles hating on Douglas. Styles returns to the commentary booth and plays this up well, talking about how Pitbull 1 helps lay the foundations of ECW, and Douglas was the one to put him out of action, maybe permanently. The bell rings. Francine distracts Pitbull 2 by mocking Gary on the outside, which allows Douglas to take advantage and control the early going. Pitbull 2 cuts him off and hits a brain buster, followed by a neck breaker. The crowd are absolutely ravenous and immediately start chanting, break his, break his neck, and that is some level of heat. 
Pitbull 2 continue to work over Douglas's neck. He cranks on it with a standing guillotine choke. He hits an emphatic DDT. The more he targets Douglas's neck, the more wild the crowd go. The action spills to the outside, but Douglas finally gains some momentum with the use of a steel chair. He lands a few shots to Pitbull 2. They brew through the crowd. They hit each other with whatever weapons they can find. Back inside the ring, Douglas begins to work over Pitbull 2 as Francine distracts him by again mocking Pitbull 1, Gary, on the outside. Douglas goes to the outside. He then threatens Gary with a chair. The crowd absolutely hate that. Pitbull 2 is bleeding heavily. Douglas returns to the ring and he lands a vertical suplex for just a one count. Francine throws her base to Douglas. He uses it to crack Pitbull 2, which gets a two count. Douglas then pulls a chain out of his boot. He decks Pitbull 2 with it, but again, this only gets a two count. The crowd rally behind Pitbull 2. Chain lands a power driver on a chair, but Pitbull 2 yet again kicks out. He makes a comeback, but is cut off by his own blood loss. Shane Douglas manages to block a superbomb attempt and hits a a belly-to-belly suplex for the win after 15 minutes. Joel Gertner props his foot up on Pitbull 2 as he announces that Shane Douglas as the winner. Pitbull 2 then recovers and then superbombs the ref and then Joel Gertner to cheer the fans up. What did you think of this match? This was what it needed to be. It was weapon-heavy, it was brawl-heavy, you know, um, this is a blood feud. Um, I liked how you Shane using the weapons to weaken Pitbull too, and the fact that he he became weaker with the blood loss as well sort of made sense. Um, obviously, the foreign object spot was there last in last month's show too, where you know he hits him with one thing that doesn't work, he hits him with something different that doesn't work. Hits him with them again that doesn't work, you know. So it's good to see that they're keeping a bit of consistency with him being the monster that doesn't just go down to one hit of a tiny chain wrapped around a hand. Um, I mean, you had to have Shane win, you know. I mean, the the way you get out of this best is if you know, and we touch wood that Pitbull one is fine and can come back that's when Shane gets his comeuppance is it's done by Gary, not Pitbull 2. Um, but I really like this match. I felt that for the passion and the story going into it, it was the right level of violence. Yeah, I, com- I completely agree. I think they got the level of violence spot on. And uh, it's, it's WWF and WCW. They don't tell stories like this. And I, I know uh, with the NWO in, in its inception, we, we have a very intriguing storyline there, but it's not the same sort of emotionally charged level as something like this. Um, the morality is questionable, and we'll have to see what the level of injury and if people one Gary is able to come back. But if he isn't, then using the injury in such a way as this could be questionable. But at the end of the day, it made for exciting, emotionally charged match that the fans loved. Um, the psychology of the opening segment of the match, with Pitbull 2 continuously targeting uh, Shane Douglas's neck, was just superb. And the crowd chanting, break his neck, was just like... It was surreal, almost. Like they, 
you, you felt like these men wanted to see Shane Douglas's neck broken legitimately. Uh, in the, and to get that level of heat from a crowd, especially a crowd that would be considered as smart as the crowd in the ECW arena, was just wonderful. Um, and that is a credit to the both the men in the match and the storytelling behind it. Um, this was very, very, very good uh, from both a storytelling aspect and they backed it up with their work in the ring. So nothing but bad. Uh, nothing, sorry, nothing but good to say about this one. It's, uh, it's, it's the one thing the ECW knows how to do and do well is do emotionally investing stories that the other two would not go anywhere near. Because if you think it's the same with in the Raven and Tommy Dreamer and the Tommy Dream or the yeah Raven Tommy Dreamer Raven and Sandman, you know, neither of the of the big two shall we say would think of using the other kid the other guy's kid. As a, as a pawn sort of brainwashing them. But ECW will. ECW will do a story, you know, as we said, Touchwood, it's not a real, you know, serious injury that means his career's over, but a career ending injury as a story and a, as a, and a use for a blood feud. You know, it's the one thing that yes, ECW will take those, those limits and go those over those boundaries, but because they do it so well, you don't mind them doing it. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, it takes balls to use an injury, however severe, but one on this level in a, in a storyline and to not only do it, but to do it successfully at this level with a, with a crowd that invested is some achievement. So, uh, big thumbs up for this segment. Big thumbs up again for ECW's level of storytelling. So we move on to a tag team match with uh, Taz and Brian Lee taking on Tommy Dreamer and the debuting Dr. Death, Steve Williams. Taz, who's still being pushed as an ultimate fighter, and Brian Lee make their way to the ring, accompanied by Bill Alfonso. Alfonso cuts a promo before the match, reminding everyone that Taz is still undefeated. Bueller leaves Dreamer and Dr. Death to the ring. Steve Williams gets a fantastic reaction from the crowd. Match starts when Brian Lee attacks Dreamer from behind and gets things underway. Dreamer cuts him off with a neck breaker and tag tags, Taz tags himself in. Taz lands a beautiful Northern Lights suplex and he calls out Dr. Death. Dreamer makes the tag and it's on. But Brian Lee brushes in and quickly turns the brawl, it turns the, the action into a two and two brawl. Lee and Williams fight out in the ring and Taz and Dreamer make their way through the crowd. Dreamer takes Taz up to the soundstage. They set up three tables side by side below. Brian Lee makes his way up to the soundstage as well, and Dreamer shapes to hit him with a DDT off the soundstage through one of the tables below. Taz cuts Dreamer off, sets up for a T-bone Tazplex off the stage, and hits him through off the stage through one of the tables below. This was one hell of a bump. Back yeah, in the it, ring. It Sorry, looked like that. It looked like that hurt. There were three tables, and he missed two of them. Crashed through one, and just... That was not cushioning drop. That was not there to break the fall. <laughs> he hit the floor hard. The table did nothing. It was so... Uh, yeah, I don't know uh, how Dreamer wasn't seriously hurt taking this bump, but it made for one hell of a uh, sequence. Uh, back in the ring, Fonzie hits Blue Bueller with a clothesline and celebrates, but Bueller gets up and drops Fonzie with a kick to the balls. 
They begin to trade slaps on the floor before Dr. Death returns to the ring and press slams Fonzie out of the ring onto Team Taz. Taz gets back to the ring. Dr. Death and Taz finally go at it. Williams gets a side headlock takeover, but Taz counters with a head scissors. Taz then gets a side headlock takeover of his own, but Williams counters again with a head scissors. The pair continue the train wrestling until they begin to exchange slaps. Williams whips Taz into the ropes, but Kaz touches, Kaz, Taz catches him in a position for a T-blown Tazplex. Williams counters into an awesome Doctor Bomb, which is a gut-wrench powerbomb. Brian Lee comes back and attacks Williams, and Dreamer makes his return to the ring with a trash can. Dreamer goes to hit a DDT on Lee on the trash can, but Lee counters, hits a chokeslam on the trash can to Tommy, and this is enough for the free count in a short but sweet six-minute match. Chris, thoughts on this? Well, as we've as we already said, that T-bone, bloody hell. The, the, that, that's the sort of drop that, you know, couldn't end careers. And, you know, by the grace of the good Lord, Tommy isn't dead. Um, Dr. Death looks in some really good shape, you know, and I reckon him and Taz could have a stiff, hard-hitting brawl which I'd quite like to see them sort of lob each other around. Um, Tommy Dreamer, the the infinite baby face that can take a hide in, yet always, always makes you think that he can get up from it. However much punishment he takes, you you still think that he can take more. Um, it's it's a thing that Dreamer has got down to a T, and in this match. He did it again. And, you know, obviously, he's gone off the back burner of the Raven feud, and now he's sort of tat- against Taz and Brian Lee a bit more. And I think it's it's a good change of pace for him. And I'll, I'll quite happily have these matches again. Oh, absolutely. This was a great debut for uh, Steve Williams, in that they, in six minutes, were able to have a fun match and then sell you on wanting to see Taz and Steve Williams, giving you just a small taste of it and leaving you wanting to see a hell of a lot more. It was such a good debut, such a way to get him over with a crowd. It was such a good way to build up his first match or his first program singles match with Taz. And that's a match I want to see. I want to see Taz and Steve Williams suplex each other around. That, That will be one hell of a match. And as we already spoke about that, and T-Bone off the stage to Dreamer was just unbelievable. And I said it was eerie seeing uh, Pitbull 1 come out in that halo uh, earlier. And the, the juxtaposition to having him there in that neck brace to, to a bump like this. And it's just like, it. hopefully that injury is to Pitbull 1 isn't as severe because it makes things like this, using that injury in a storyline, makes bumps like this stand out so much more because of the impact that the very real injury risk and ECW brought that to life with the Pitbull 1 promo segment and then followed it up with that moment and it increased the impact in a massive way. This was probably as good a six minute tag team match as you're ever going to see. It was very ECW. We had some uh, good wrestling in the ring. We had some brawling throughout the crowd. We had a crazy highlight reel bump and uh, it left you wanting more. So 
like most things on this show, a big thumbs up. This this was only short, but did everything it needed to do. Next up, we have a four-way dance for the ECW World Tag Team Championships, with the Eliminators defending against the Gangsters, the Bruce Brothers, and the Samoan Gangster Party. To start us off, we have just the Eliminators and the Bruce Brothers. They brawl, and the Samoan Gangster Party quit the fray, still handcuffed. They had been arrested earlier in the night for attacking the Gangsters in an angle that we weren't actually shown. There's chaos everywhere as the six men brawl in the ring, and the only notable highlight is Saturn hitting a diving headbutt. The gangsters then come out with a trash can full of weapons, and the arena erupts. The brawling spreads all over the arena. The gangsters initially fight the Samoan gangster party in the ring, but the Bruise Brothers and the Eliminators fight on the outside and through the crowd. New Jack dives off the top rope, hits one of the Samoans with a chair, and they are pinned to be eliminated first. New Jack and Saturn then brawl through the crowd and out through the front door, where a large crowd seemed to have already been gathered. This was a uh, uh, turn-away uh, sell-out, so very possible that these were just fans hanging out outside the arena in the hope to get some action like this, and they were eagerly they were rewarded for their uh, dedication. Uh, the fighting continues back towards the ring. The Bruce Brothers take controls. They hit a double boot first to Saturn, then a double boot to Cronus, and finally they hit a double boot to Mustafa. Out of nowhere, the, elim- the Eliminators fly back in, they hit a total elimination on one of the Bruise Brothers, which gets a free count. And I have to say, that was probably one of the best total eliminations I've ever seen. They literally come out of nowhere. You don't see them coming, and it's just, the impact behind it was superb. There is a definite snap to it, that one. There was just, it was crisp. It was excellent. Uh, so we're down to just the Eliminators and the Gangsters. The Eliminators work them over. They they work New Jack over and set him up by, for a total elimination, but he avoids it by pulling Saturn in front of the Cronus' high kick. Mustafa hits a power slam. New Jack goes to the top, slides down with a chair onto Cronus. That's enough for the free count, and the Gangsters are the new ECW Tag Team Champions. Chris, thoughts on the match on the title change on the whole shebang? Well, as I said earlier, you know, this is the moment where ECW has its traditional problem when you have mass men or a mass number of people having a mass brawl walking around the arena. You miss lots of it. Um, it would be nice if, you know, when they do these these big walking brawls that there was a way of showing a bit more of what was going on everywhere. But for these four teams, it sort of had to be a, a giant walking brawl because let's face it, the Eliminators, the Gangsters, and the Samoans Gangster Party have such a bit of a history in the last couple of months where the Samoan Gangster Party were trying to run over the Gangsters. You know, they had their heads down, were going to run them over with their car. They weren't going to have a technical wrestling match. It was going to be a fight and a fight it was um, as you said uh, when the Eliminators eliminated the Bruise Brothers with the very very crisp t- total elimination that was really good um, I liked 
how you had the little bit of sort of confusion between the, the eliminators, where obviously when Kronos hit Saturn with the big kick, um, because obviously the eliminators have been quite dominant recently, and you know it shows that even the best teams can have their moments where they where they screw up, and the gangsters have finally got their titles. And again, as I said earlier with, you know, some things are very, very ECW. The gangsters are another one of these teams that could only, only be ECW. And in a way, could be classed as a positive role model for ECW to show the diversity but obviously, you know, there is quite a heavy racial side of the Eliminators, or of the gangsters even, which they actually play upon the whole Malcolm X thing. But, you know, it's good to see them have the belts. Yeah, I, I, the crowd absolutely loved the title change. They popped for that as much as they popped for anything on the night. Um, this is the epitome of what I said at the top of the show with uh, the layout of the card. I wouldn't have put, because we hadn't seen too much of a walking brawl aspect. It was quite low on the walking brawl aspects in, in relative to other ECW shows before this match. The match that I had the second most probably was the uh, tag match we'd just seen before. That's why I wouldn't have put the two tag matches that were very similar in style uh, next to each other. You'd have swapped uh, Ideally, the Dreamer and Steve Williams match with uh, the uh, Douglas and Pitbull 2 match. And this match was a little over 10 minutes, but it felt slightly longer. And I think that was partly down to stylistically having the two walking brawl heavy style matches back to back. Um, maybe made this feel older quicker than it deserved to because the action was fine. It was quintessentially ECW as you say it was it was the only way this match could have gone was how it went you can't come out and have a technical wrestling match with these teams with the story behind it so I'd have liked to see a bit better card placement I think if this had been earlier in the show or if this had been where it was but the previous tag match was a lot earlier in the show I'd have probably enjoyed this more but like I say the it was a great moment um with the tag title change. Uh, we'll talk about it a bit more when we get to uh, the hardcore TVs from Japan, but there's an interesting side story to the Eliminators losing the tag title belts, uh, but we'll talk about that more when we get to the uh, hardcore TV review for the 13th. So we move on to the main event of the evening, and we have Sabu taking on Rob Van Dam in a stretcher match. This is the culmination of their rivalry, and they go back and forth in an early feeling out pre period before Van Dam flips Sabu off. They trade strikes in the corner. Sabu then works at Van Dam's legs before hitting a slingshot leg drop and a slingshot headbutt. Van Dam hits a double underhook slam. Sabu hits Van Dam with a drop kick in midair as he tries to springboard from the ring to the apron. Uh, Sabu follows Van Dam to the outside, hitting with a sl- hitting him with a slingshot some sort plancher before setting up a table between the ring and the guardrail. They briefly brawl on the outside before Sabu takes the action back into the ring. 
He looks for a move from the top rope, but Van Dam cuts him off, rapes him across the ropes. Van Dam quickly hits an excellent spinning back kick from the top to the rope hung Sabu, sending him crashing to the concrete on the outside. Van Dam lays a chair across Sabu's face, goes to the top rope, and hits a leg drop down onto Sabu, who is draped across the apron. Van Dam calls for a stretcher. The officials bring it, put Sabu on it, but he rolls off. The action's back inside the ring. Van Dam continues his dominance with a powerbomb. While Sabu is down, he mockingly offers to shake his hand. Sabu gets back to his feet. He's dropped with a nice leg sweep. And Van Dam follows it up with a standing moot suit. Van Dam goes out to the apron and tries to suplex Sabu to, to the outside. Sabu blocks it, drops Van Dam across the ropes and follows with a flying guillotine leg drop as Van Dam twe- teeters across the middle ropes. That looked brutal. Van Dam rolls out of the ring. Sabu sets up a chair and goes for his jump to the outside, but Van Dam springles back inside the ring and attempts to clothesline Sabu. He misses by a considerable distance and falls face first into the mat. Sabu reacts quick, quickly and drops a leg across the back of Van Dam's neck before hitting an Arabian va- face buster and calling for the stretcher. Van Dam is stretched down the aisle, but before he turns back, he rolls off and returns to the ring. He is welcomed back by Sabu hitting a triple jump moonsault. Sabu then sets up for Air Sabu, but Van Dam tries to counter, but Sabu adjusts in midair and hits a flying clothesline. Sabu takes Van Dam to the outside and lays him on the stretcher before hitting the Asai moonsault. Sabu crashes down onto Van Dam and his own legs hit the steel guardrail hard. That looked brutal. So basically Sabu from the ring apron hits the moonsault. Van Dam's on the stretcher but He's too close to the steel guardrail. So Sabu's upper body lands on Van Dam, lands on a stretcher, but waist down, it's just pure steel. He hits it hard. It doesn't look comfortable. Both men are carried out on the stretchers, but Sabu's the first to roll off. Sabu climbs onto the guardrail, hits the leg drop to Van Dam while he's still on his stretcher. They both make their way back to the ring. Van Dam hits a Van Daminator, followed by a moonsault press off the guardrail. They get back in the ring. Sabu launches a chair at Van Dam, which hits him square in the face and looks absolutely brutal. It's the hardest chair shot of the night. He just launches this chair across the ring and it catches... So uh, Van Dam does not get his hands up in any way. It just catches him flush. It looked like a, a knockout blow. Sabu sets Van Dam up on the top rope and hits a triple jump Harkamrana. Van Dam rolls to the outside. Sabu goes for a dive, but Van Dam cuts him off and hits a fisherman's buster off the apron through the table that had been set up on the outside. And that was one hell of a sequence. Back inside the ring, Van Dam nails Sabu with a chair. Both men simultaneously try to springboard off the ropes on the opposite sides of a corner, but Van Dam gets the better with a side mid kick in, in midair. Sorry, side kick in midair. Van Dam goes for a fisherman's buster, but Sabu counters with one of his own. Sabu tries a moonsault, but Van Dam shields himself from a chair, and Sabu crashes into it. Sabu looks done. He's rolled out onto the stretcher. Officials start wheeling him out, but Van Dam gets greedy. He climbs to the top rope and tries one more splash, flying to the outside with a somersault plancher, but Sabu moves out of the way. Van Dam crashes onto the edge of the stretcher, tumbling down onto the concrete hard. Van Dam is rolled onto the stretcher by officials and wheeled to the back. 
Sabu picks up the win after nearly 25 minutes. The show abruptly ends with little celebration from Sabu. Uh, Chris, thanks for sticking with me through the uh, match review. I know you had a 40-minute match last month. This is 25 minutes. Uh, thoughts on this? Thoughts on the match and the closure of the Rob Van Dam Sabu story? Well, first I have to say well done for catching all of that match to do your blow-by-blow for because these two were basically playing horse with each other. They were they were playing it to sort of a one-up sort of game of what you can do, I can do that, and do it better. And each each onslaught was more more inventive than the other. You know, um, my personal favourite being that fisherman buster through the table. That was just sick. <laughs> there is no other way of putting it. That was a sick bump. Um, these two. I think maybe each other's yin and yang. I think these two will be sort of forever embroiled with each other because their styles go together so well. You know, both of them do do stuff that... How how do they come up with the idea of doing it? You know, you've got Sabu doing triple jump moonsaults and triple jump hurricane runners. You've got RVD doing as I said, the fisherman buster for a table and going up to the top thinking, I've got a good idea. I will do a triple backflip suicide onto someone on a stretcher because that's sensible. You know, it is, it is one of those, I think these two together both have their very own ways of being extreme and violent. And then you put them together and nothing but good things can come from it. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, this was just absolutely stellar. And the, the spot I picked out as well was the same as you. When Van Damme is on the ring apron, Sabu goes to jump to over the top rope to the outside. And Van Damme catches him in midair and hits a vicious fisherman's buster off the apron, down onto the concrete through a table. Is one of the most unique, creative and vicious looking spots I have ever seen. It was truly marvellous. Um, There's a point towards the end of the match where I had to say I was enjoying it. I thought it was very good, but I thought they are just trading moves. There's not much there's not much by way of a story considering this is like the final chapter in their rivalry and I, by the end of it, I have to admit, I, I, I felt that I was wrong of, with that assumption. Uh, the story of this match was, was very simple, as you say. It was anything you can do, I can do better. And it wasn't about beating the other man. They've traded wins before. What it was very much about was outshining their opponent. And that story was interwoven pr- perfectly into the end of the match with Van Damme. He has the match won. Sabu is on his way to the back, being stretched out, but he he gets greedy. He can't he can't resist one last jump over the top rope to add insult to injury, to steal the show, to stand tall in a highlight real way, and it costs him and it costs him a match. And that story, in retrospect, once you've seen the ending to this, is perfectly interwoven throughout. Someone tries a moonsault, whether they hit it or not, within the next couple of minutes. The other guy tries a moonsault. 
they mirror each other. They're, they're, they're in competition in terms of their athleticism. And it might not be the perfect match in terms of the selling aspect and your stereotypical classical wrestling match, but the athleticism was off the charts. And the story actually matched that. It's the type of match I'm going to have to go back and watch a second time because I think knowing the ending, it will make the, the preceding 25 minutes even better. This was just fantastic. Like, it was so good. Uh, any any other thoughts on, on that match? Of, of the, as you were saying, as a, with the whole sort of one-upping each other, it, it was, look, you've done a normal moonsault. I will do a double moonsault. Well, I will do a triple jump moonsault with a chair. And it was just like, literally, let's see who can do the next, the next leap. And normally it's a criticism that we have with ECW is, you know, it starts with a table bump, then it turns to a flaming table bump and flaming tables from higher, high sort of falls and taking balcony table bumps. But this is a one-upmanship that we can deal with in ECW because it's not increasing the danger and the violence. It's an increasing of skill. Yeah, there was one table bump in the whole match. There were a few chair shots, but nothing like we'd seen earlier in the night. And the chairs were usually incorporated into moves rather than just being sort of a straight chair to chair shot to the head or something mm. along those lines. It was a one-upsmanship level, not in terms of danger or risk, as you say, but purely in terms of skill and athleticism. And that was... The story of this match was so simple that I got most of the way through it and hadn't really paid attention to it and, and making my notes and, and writing down sort of move for move what these guys are doing and a part of me thinks they are just trading moves here like one guy's hitting a moonsault and the next guy's hitting a moonsault but it's beautiful in its simplicity and that that is the the very excellent story and as you say it's oh you hit a moonsault mine will be a double moonsault and it, it just worked perfectly it was the perfect way to uh finish off the rivalry between the two men. Uh, seemingly, Taz is next to Sabu. Alfonso made reference to Sabu in his promo when he was introducing Taz earlier in the night. Um, don't know what's next for Van Damme, but, I mean, both of these guys, this is the type of match that it's the end of the rivalry for now, but the war will never be over and maybe we'll get Sabu RVD5 somewhere down the line. Because as you say... Ying, the yin and yang aspect of these two men's work is just superb. They're, uh, def- they're definitely a pair that we could see much of for a long time. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, that brings an end to The Doctor Is In. Chris, give me your overall thoughts on this show and a score rating out of 10. Well, as I said at the beginning, um, it's a really, really good show. It's a perfect mix of the wrestling, the brawling, and all the things that ECW does. Um, do yourself a favour, find, try and find yourself a copy of this. Um, it's, it's one of those that I would recommend new people to ECW to watch, people that have been watching ECW for a long time to watch, or people that just want to see what we are talking about. You know, it's, it's the, it's one of the perfect shows of a little bit of everything of ECW and each of those aspects being at their best. And I would give the show eight and a half 
out of ten. Yeah, I I agree with you. Um, obviously, a lot more of an amateur when it comes to ECW than yourself, but probably the best ECW show I've seen. Um, everything was good on the show. Everything, every segment, every match had something that's worth you watching. It's worth going out of your way to see. Um, even the no contest between Devon and Axel Rotten. I mean, find that just for Bubble Ray's plancher to the outside. Like everything. The story to Stevie Richards and Sandman was on another level. Uh, Scorpio and Jericho was great. Uh, again, the story to Douglas and Pitbull 2 was fantastic. Great debut for Dr. Death Steve Williams. Uh, really exciting tag title change for the gangsters. And then that main event, which is just so good. Um, on another level, uh, technically, brawling-wise, and this card had the, the full variety of what ECW has to offer. And it offered it not all in moderation, but in a balanced way. Um, nothing was overkill on this show. So for me, I'm going to give this show a 9 out With The Doctor Is In taking place on the 3rd of the month, we now move on to our hardcore TV chat for August 1996, starting with the August 6th edition of the show, which is entirely composed of highlights from The Doctor Is In. So on this show, we have the Dominion segment from that show, which is J.T. Smith bringing out Kiss before being caned by Sandman, who is in turn taken down by Raven and Stevie Richards. Then we have the segment with Axel Rotten and Devon Dudley ending up being in a brawl between Devon and Bubba Ray Dudley. And we have the match between Stevie and Sandman with Stevie defending Raven's ECW World Heavyweight Championship. And finally, to wrap up that week's hardcore TV, we see highlights of the four-way dance with the gangsters winning the ECW tag team titles from the Eliminators with the Brief Brothers and Samoan Gangster Party. Also in that match, that is the full hardcore TV for that week. Uh, so yeah, don't really need to go into any more detail for that. But it's very different with the second episode of hardcore TV of the month, the episode that aired on the 13th of August. Uh, this is entirely made up of highlights from the August 11 show, but entirely from Kurokan Hall in Japan as part of ECW's tour with in conjunction with the IWA. Uh, this show was in front of the largest crowd in ECW history. And uh, so let's get going. A self-professed jet lags Joey Styles welcomes us to the show. We see footage of Japanese fans wearing ECW shirts. 
Styles says fans have flocked to see the ECW wrestlers in their thousands and notes just how far the promotion has come in three years. Tommy Dreamer, you finally got me all alone. No flunkies, no lackeys, no nothing. It's the same way they got the belt off of Tyson. Right here in the exact same sports complex in Tokyo, Japan. They got them all alone. Well, Tommy Dreamer, I am not going to lose like Tyson. You will not beat me for this belt. You couldn't beat me in Philadelphia. You couldn't beat me in Florida. You couldn't beat me in New York. You've never beaten me in your entire life. And even though I'm all alone, with no one to help me, I've I've never needed any help anyway. I've always done it all alone, Tommy Dreamer. And even if you do beat me for the belt, my life's a living hell anyway. We get a pre-taped Raven promo. Raven builds up the main event with Tommy Dreamer later tonight. Raven says Dreamer has finally got him all alone. No flunkies, no lackeys, no nothing. It's the exact same way they got the belt off Tyson in the same sports complex in Tokyo. Raven says he will not lose the belt like Tyson did. He says Tommy couldn't beat him in Philadelphia. Tommy couldn't beat him in Florida. Tommy couldn't beat him in New York. And Tommy has never beaten him in his entire life. Raven says that even though he's all alone with no help, it doesn't matter because he's never needed the help anyway. Even if he does lose the title to Tommy tonight, it doesn't matter because his life is already a living hell. So we get the first match from Kirken Hall. It's an interpromotional match with ECW's The Eliminators taking on team of Kazuki Yamada and Takashi Okano of the IWA. As the match starts, Joey Styles tells us that the fact that Saturn wasn't able to return to Japan as the current ECW Tag Team Champions will be driving him crazy. There's an interesting note about that in The Observer, and uh, I'll talk about the uh, match first, and we'll discuss the match, and then I'll talk through the uh, tag title situation. So... This match was basically, it felt like a, a prolonged exhibition squash, if you will, with ECW's team uh, looking strong throughout. Kronos and Saturn are in control early, with Kronos getting a big reaction from the initially reserved crowd. Uh, Saturn goes to the top rope early on and shouts, EC fucking W, before driving a knee into Yamada. This wakes up the crowd, who proceed to chant loudly, ECW, which is very unlike the stereotypical Japanese crowd. The Eliminator continue in complete control. Yamada and Okada, Okana only get short hope spots, uh, such as a near fall with a crucifix, before being immediately cut off again by the dominant Eliminators. Okana ducks a clothesline from Saturn and hits him with a lovely German suplex for a two count. Saturn then responds with a German of his own, before the action spills to the outside. Cronus takes a chair to Okano, and Saturn dives from the top rope to the outside, which brings more ECW trance from the loud crowd. ECW team continue their dominance, regardless of which IWA wrestlers in there with them. Cronus hits a superplex, and Saturn follows it up with a splash from the top rope for a two-count. The IWA pair finally get some sustained offense. The two run wild with double clotheslines and drop kicks, and they clear the ring. Okano hits a spinning roundhouse kick on Cronus, followed by a scoop slam for a two count. 
They're locking a double STF on Cronus, but Saturn breaks it up. Yamada hits a high crossbody off the top, but Cronus breaks up the pin. Saturn hits a big vertical suplex and follows it up with a kamikaze diving headbutt from the top, but Yamada breaks up the pin. Cronus clears Yamada from the ring, and the Eliminators hit total elimination on Okano for the win at around the 14-minute mark. Uh, Chris, any thoughts on this show, the first televised match from the Tour of Japan for ECW? I, as you said, it was a sort of glorified squash match, but I actually quite enjoyed it. Um, Obviously, seeing ECW guys in a very different environment of the Japanese Japanese audience, um, obviously, they're they have a way of sort of obviously being quite quiet during matches and stuff and hearing them starting to shit on and stuff it was like it was very novel to see it um the match itself the two japanese lads were really really good um um would worked really well against the eliminators and their, their style and obviously the eliminators winning was one of those that we thought it was definitely going to happen because of it being on ECW TV. They weren't going to sort of have their guys lose. But, you know, if if that's the standard of match they were putting on on that tour, it would have definitely pleased the fans that were there. Yeah, it felt like an exhibition of what an ECW tag team looks like and what one of their matches looks like in front of a crowd that was dying to see it. And uh, a glorified squash maybe, but it got over the crowd. It, the crowd wanted it to get over with them. They were there to see this. They, they were excited to see this. They were excited to have ECW there. Um, but it worked well. Um, an interesting note about the Eliminators. You say, obviously, they were scheduled to win this match. Well, initially, um, this match was actually listed as an ECW tag team title match to the extent that the uh, ring announcer live actually announced the match as being for the titles despite the Eliminators, one, not having the belts, and two, having lost them a week prior at the Doctor is in. Um, the immediate belief regarding the actual tag title change in Japan was that uh, Heyman didn't want the Eliminators to lose to an outside team. Because the Eliminators were actually scheduled to face a different team on this show. But the one half of the tag team they were scheduled to be facing actually sustained an injury on the show the night before, on the 10th of August. So he was unable to perform at this one. So Yamada and Yakano were sort of roped in last minute as Eliminator opponents. And as such, the match was changed so that the Eliminators would be going over. But initially, the Eliminators were scheduled to lose this match. And people believe that the sole reasoning before the around the um, tag title switch with the gangsters winning the belts the week before is that Heyman did not want the Eliminators, as his champions, losing to an outside team. Uh, there was an idea to bill it as an international tag team title match, but Heyman didn't want to do that. He said ECW only has one set of champions. Um, Heyman cl- tried to make the Eliminators billed as the number one contenders for the IWA tag team titles, but that didn't fly. And according to people there, the ring announcement definitely said it was an ECW tag title match. And the fans there... The hardcore ECW fans who had heard about the tag title switch were said to be really surprised having heard about the Eliminators losing the belt last week. So there's a lot of confusion when the ring announcer said it was for the uh, ECW tag titles. So, uh, Chris, any thoughts on, on that? So, conspiracy theory, 
that uh, the title switch was done purely to save face with the eliminators initially intended to uh, be losing a match on this show. What are your thoughts on that? It's definitely one of those of I've we've heard things like this before with uh, ECW where if something doesn't go their way they will somehow change it or do something about it. So I wouldn't put it past me put it past them to have changed the whole of you know, a pay per view finish or a big show finish, give the title to someone else just so they didn't have to. Um it's petty, but at the same point it's we've seen it from ECW before. And in the same manner, sort of to play devil's advocate and defend ECW, it worked. And it didn't feel like they hot shot a title change. It felt like a natural part of that storyline, uh, with the gangsters winning the belts. Um so although it may have been rushed, it wasn't like a, a, a U-turn with storyline. It may have brought it forward a few weeks, uh, but it worked. It got over with the crowd on the night, ECW's crowd. Um, it's just an interesting little anecdote to add a, an extra layer to ECW's uh, backstage dealings. So next up, we have Raven defending his ECW World Championship against Tommy Dreamer. Paul Lee is in the ring for the introductions. He gets a big reaction from the crowd who chant ECW throughout. One little pet peeve I had about this match, especially in ECW, which seems hard, harsh to hold them to a higher standard, but it's because of what they represent that it applies even more to them. I hate when matches between two guys who hate each other just start with like a collar elbow tie up. Mm. The, the, the blood feud aspect of, of the rivalry between Raven and Tommy Dreamer, uh, for them to, to just lock up in the middle of the ring doesn't really make the utmost sense. And I say especially in ECW because this is the home of hardcore wrestling. This is, this is where they push the boundaries of what people do to each other inside the ring and inside the arena generally. And, uh, so it makes even less sense that these two blood, blood rivals in a blood feud would would start a match in that way, but nonetheless, that is how the match started. Well, it's like, as we said, um, what was the good thing about the Pitbull and the Shane match from Dr. Zinn is that they literally went at each other to break each other's necks. There was no sort of being nice about it. They, they were really going at it. Whereas, you know, you'd expect the same here as well. Yeah. Well, to, to their credit, it didn't last too long, that, that particular tone within the match. Um, the action quickly spilled to the outside, as you'd expect. And within the first minute, Tommy Dreamer baseball slides a chair into Raven's head and busts him open. So, as I say, it didn't last too long. It's just a little pet peeve of mine. Uh, but, yeah, Raven's busted open and Dreamer gets chance off. He's hardcore from the Japanese crowd. There's some really bad camera work out in the crowd, which makes it really difficult to see what's going on. Uh, the highlight would be Raven suplexing Dreamer onto the bare concrete floor. I say highlight, probably not for Tommy. Um, the action eventually returns to the ring. Both men, by the time they get there, are bleeding a lot. Raven wearing a full crimson mask. Um, Raven lays a chair across Dreamer's face. He hits the leg drop. The referee checks to, che- to check to see if Dreamer's okay to continue, which of course he is. So Raven responds by hitting a DDT onto Dreamer, 
Honesty would care for a choose cow. Raven takes Dreamer outside, lays him across the table and drops a double axe handle from the ring apron. Dreamer drives Raven into the steel post and follows up by launching a table at him. Dreamer drags Raven to the top of the building and drives him into a wall, which leaves an imprint of Raven's bloody face on the paint. Dreamer throws Raven back down the steps towards the ring and turns around right into a Stevie kick, who interferes freely despite Raven's earlier promo about doing it all alone. Back in the ring, Richard slaps Dreamer before he hits him with another Stevie kick. Tommy kicks out. Another Stevie kick catches both Raven and Dreamer, but Stevie puts Raven on top of Dreamer, but again, it only gets a two. Dreamer makes a comeback. He cuts Stevie off, and Raven accidentally drop kicks Stevie. Dreamer hits a DDT, which a fairly large amount of the crowd quarters the finish, but it only gets a two. Dreamer calls for a chair from the fans. He lays the chair down and hits a running bulldog on Stevie onto the chair. Raven rolls Dreamer up for another close near fall. Beulah and Patricia get into a pool in the ring, so Dreamer pile-drives Patricia. This allows Raven to crack Dreamer with a steel chair to the back of the head, which lays him out and is enough to, the, to get the free count, which sees Raven retain his title in around 11 minutes. Uh, Chris, thoughts on this match, and more probably more importantly, Raven working a full match without his cast, having suffered pneumonia, a broken foot, and being unable to work for a large part of the early goings of the month. Well, obviously, this this is probably one of the reasons of his downfall for the rest of the month. Um, obviously, Dreamer and Raven go against each other so often that these two could probably put on a decent match in their sleep. Um as, as you'd expect, obviously we did have the beginning bit was a little bit sort of this meant to be a blood fluid, why you're not killing each other. But, you know, these two go so well together that you can put them in any sort of any environment and they are going to work. Um, having Stevie cheating and sort of, he's not here, he's not going to be one. And then my lackeys, he turns up, he gives him a couple of super kicks. That's what Stevie's there for. And Raven, the character always needs that that element of I've got a plan B because at some point Tommy is going to get that win, but it wasn't going to be today, and it wasn't going to be on a random show in Japan. But you still needed that that level to give Tommy enough hope and enough belief that he can do it and then for the rogue to be taken out from him um, but obviously with the with health of Raven I think the whole trip may have been a silly idea but you needed your world champion there yep absolutely I agree with everything you said uh, the match was fine it was a good exhibition of an ECW world title match for the Japanese crowd, they got to see Raven defend the belt, they got to see Dreamer, they got to see probably the biggest marquee match ECW has to offer. They were happy, uh, which is good, but for the long term, uh, expected to have surgery on his foot later in the month. As you say, don't know that was the best idea for Raven to be, be there in the first place. Uh, but that's the end of the Hardcore TV from Corrigan Hall, and for the August 20th edition, we turn to the ECW Arena. 
We get a recap of the gangsters winning the tag titles from the Doctor is in, and we cut to a pre-taped New Jack promo. You know, this whole thing started. One night my mom called me and she said, Jerome, your youngest sister, her son is gone. I said, what do you mean, gone? She said, well, you know, you know the neighborhood we live in, the neighborhood we've been trying to get out of forever. She said, you know what goes on? Gang banging. She said, well, they was claiming territory outside and, uh, They started shooting. He was laying in his room asleep and a stray bullet came through, through the window. Took him right out. Police came, ambulances came. Wasn't nothing they could do. I said, damn. All the money I've been trying to make just wasn't enough. And I called Mustafa and I said, we got to win. The tag team belts. We got to get the titles because if we don't, ain't no telling who's going to be next. I got to get what's left of my family out the projects, out the ghetto, and I'm going to do it by any means necessary. New Jack is very emotional. He explains just how much winning the tag team titles means to him and his family. We get a video package recapping the full story of the gangster's journey to winning the titles at the Doctor is in. That night, Mustafa looked at me and he said, Jack, partner, I ain't never seen you like this before. And I told him, I said, Mustafa, for three weeks, my mom has cried for three weeks because we didn't have the money to get that kid a tombstone. And I looked at Mustafa and I told him, I said, tonight, we got to win the titles. We got to. Because we got to get that kid a tombstone. The only match featured in this episode is Shane Douglas defeating Pitbull 2 to retain his ECW television championship, which we reviewed in our coverage of the Doctor of we see a prom- we see the promo segment with Pitbull one before the match talking about how he doesn't know if he'll ever wrestle again, followed by the match in its entirety with a ravenous crowd watching Douglas defeat Pitbull two. We move on to the final edition of Hardcore TV for the month with the twenty seventh of August episode. 
We round off the month with a hardcore TV consisting of two matches. The first taking place uh, on the from the hardcore. Uh, sorry, the first taking place from the Natural Born Killers event that took place on the twenty fourth of August, which is Rob Van Dam uh, taking a match against a surprise opponent who ends up being the IWA's Doug Furness. They are hard hitting back and forth match with bundles of athleticism, but little by way of storytelling. Van Dam wins. Dominantly, after around 14 minutes, by hitting a spin kick with a chair on Furnace's face. Post-match, Van Damme offers a handshake to Furnace, but Furnace instead drops him and hits a brutal belly-to-back suplex. We then see Van Damme stretched out of the arena. For the second time in as many weeks. We then have Lewis Bacoli taking on the debut in Johnny Smith. This match was seen in one of the opening matches from The Doctor is In, with Smith picking up the victory in just over five minutes in a really fun match with a Tiger Bomb. The crowd chant for both guys after the match, and they shake hands. And that wraps up the hardcore TV coverage for the month. Uh, any notes from the final two shows you'd like to go over, or we all good? We're good. As I said, as you said, most of it is all from Doctor's In, which obviously we've already covered. Yep. So, with the hardcore TV covered, the Doctor is in covered, uh, that will do for this month's edition of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. This has been Volume 3, and joining me as we traverse back in the time machine to August of uh, 1996, I'd say thank you very much, the veteran ECW head of Chris Lacey. You're more than welcome, Chris, as, uh, you know, it is my excuse just to watch ECW again. Chris, uh, plug your Twitter, plug anything you want to get over, plug your Super Bowls podcast. Well, as we all know, the football season has now started again, so my Twitter will be full of me ranting about how terrible Liverpool are and normally how useless Norwich are as well. Um, that's nice and easy to find on Lacey555666. Um, as for Super Bowls, we have... a just posted, or will be posting by the time this comes out, probably one of the most fun shows we've recorded in a very long while. We review, we've just reviewed the 1992 New Japan versus WCW Super Show from the Tokyo Dome. And because we watched it off uh, New Japan World, we had the full, all the full matches from the whole card with Japanese commentary. Wow. And as as you can probably tell by how I'm say, talking about it, it's an amazing show. <laughs> so yeah, that's just come out on there. Obviously you can find that nice and easily on the, the iTunes, just search Super Rules. Find us on Twitter and Facebook, Super Rules. And obviously, you know, like, review, love us, listen to us. Even if you don't like us, listen to us. And, you know, give us five stars and then some positive feedback. Or positive criticism. Either way, five stars is what we need. There you go. Be sure to check out Super Bowls and follow Chris on Twitter at Lacey555666. In the same vein, uh, please be sure to subscribe, leave a rating, check out Wrestling 20 Years Ago, uh, check out the website, subscribe to the newsletter, leave a rating on iTunes. Uh, thank you very much for listening uh, to Volume 3 of this month's show and uh, bearing with me in my first wrestling years ago, a wrestling 20 years ago presenting gig while uh, our captain Bob is uh, off in America uh, out of 
20 years ago mode for uh, SummerSlam. Well, it was not there for SummerSlam, but getting to take in SummerSlam this weekend, leaving us to steer the ship. Um, yeah, but as I say, uh, volume one of this month's Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast, that will take you back to 1996 to have a look at WWF SummerSlam. And volume two of this month's show, of course, is your WCW edition, reviewing Hogwild and The Clash. So a uh, lot to look forward to this month. As always, uh, a lot of stuff going on. This has been volume three with your ECW coverage. I have been Chris White. Please make sure you subscribe, leave a rating, check out the website, all the good stuff. Uh, thank you for joining us for the ECW August 1996 edition of the Wrestling 20 Year Ago podcast. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>